Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I welcome Professor Victor Ricciardi. We talk about behavioral finance, bounded rationality, the psychology of financial planning and investing, as well as how your mood could influence your level of risk tolerance or what you're willing to pay for a product or service. Check out the show notes page for all the links referred to in this episode at economicrockstar.com forward slash Victor Riccardi or I-C-C-I-A-R-D-I or type Victor into the search bar on the Economic Rockstar homepage. Are you an educator? Are you passionate about education and knowledge? Have you considered taking ownership and control over your content? If you're interested in creating a website, a podcast, or even educational videos, like a flipped classroom, visit economicrockstar.com forward slash community, register your interest, and I'll be in touch. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes, why not subscribe to the Economic Rockstar podcast and you will get access to all previous episodes, including comedians Andrew Heaton and Joram Bauman and multimillionaire Ryan Blair. I want to get to know my Economic Rockstar listener so I can serve you better and make an even better show. So why not head over to economicrockstar.com forward slash survey, answer a few questions and be in with a chance of winning a $50 Amazon gift voucher. The biggest issue that I have with 401k plans is I think the, the biggest weakness of them is why they ever let... They, they put the asset allocation decision and the investment decision on the individual who doesn't know much about these items was a bad policy decision. Prepare for the worst, but also prepare for a, an optimistic scenario also. Hi, Frank Comer here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Victor Ricciardi join me today. Hi, Victor. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. You're very welcome. Victor Ricciardi is finance professor at Goucher College, Baltimore, Maryland, where he teaches courses in personal financial planning, corporate finance, investments, behavioral finance, and the psychology of money. Victor is the coordinator of behavioral and experimental research for the Social Science Research Network, also known as SSRN. Victor is the current editor for seven SSRN e-journals, including behavioral and experimental finance, History of Finance, and Behavioral and Experimental Economics. He received his PhD from Golden Gate University and his MBA from St. John's University. Victor's current book, Investor Behavior, The Psychology of Financial Planning and Investing, with co-editor Kent Baker, is now available and has 30 chapters on emerging research in behavioral finance. Victor, I'd love to start with the question, what is behavioral finance and what's the difference between behavioral finance and behavioral economics? Okay, sure. Um, behavioral finance is just the notion of integrating psychology and finance. So essentially, um, you're, you're looking at uh, some major themes such as people are not always rational and in which they use bounded rationality. They sometimes make decisions based on emotions and, and so forth. And I, I would say the two major differences between behavioral economics and behavioral finance is just behavioral economics is more tailored towards the general economic topics. You know, so for example, if somebody suffers from cocaine addiction or drug addiction and they're making um, 
bad life decisions, I would consider that more behavioral economics. Behavioral finance would be something along the lines of just how people make decisions about their investments. So I, I think just really the, the behavioral finance is more focused on finance and investments, and behavioral economics would have a little bit more of a wider definition. But ultimately, the, the general discipline of finance is based on the discipline or many underlying themes from economics, and it kind of works the same relationship between uh, behavioral economics and behavioral finance. I've explored with other guests on the show about rationality. And we kind of, the, the, the whole question about a person being rational or irrational is still rife. And do you explore that in behavioral finance? And in what context would you bring the rational approach to, say, decision making or investing? Well, uh, just, just laying the groundwork, the, the rationality comes from what's known as the standard finance or the traditional finance school. Again, rationality in that context focuses on that people are non-emotional, uh, they're calculators, and they optimize when they make decisions. The behavioral finance perspective is a little bit different in which people uh, utilize what's ca called um, bounded rationality, in, in which we make decisions based on emotion. Um, we also may be influenced by our values, our past experiences, and other types of issues. And instead of optimizing on the rationality schools, we suffice. So it's not that we're completely irrational. Um, sometimes markets are irrational in terms of maybe panics and crashes, but in terms of every day decisions, I think sometimes we make, you know, if we have a choice of 10 options, maybe we don't always make the, the, the best top one. Maybe we make the second or third or fourth one that satisfies our tastes and our desires. And you mentioned bounded rationality. That might suggest that whoever, if you have a rational approach to your behavior, it's quite bounded or restricted in terms of not being able to expound on maybe some emotions that cause irrational approaches. Would that be the context of bounded rationality or do you want to dive a little bit deeper into that? Um, I, I think the, the, the term value is just a little bit misleading. I think it, it's really not that you're not limited. It's that you are, you're, you're actually going to use those other factors that I talked about, the idea of emotion. Also, there are cognitive biases. So a cognitive bias is known as something called a heuristic. And a heuristic is when people make mental shortcuts or they're, they're faced with information overload. And they use this as essentially the heuristics as a, as a way to think about it is a toolkit or rules of thumb that we use to make decisions. So the, the whole idea of using bad irrationality is also, again, um, it's helping us create a shortcut to making decisions. Sometimes those decisions are better. Sometimes those decisions are not optimal compared to if we were perfectly rational. But Essentially, the way I think about bad irrationality, just essentially the term I would think of is that people are normal and that we're human beings and we, we, and we make decisions in a very complex way in which everything is not as neat and simple as the standard or the conventional school of thought would have you think. So these heuristics are used to help us to create a kind of a shortcut or short circuit or all the external stimuli that's coming to us. And we want to try to simplify all this information so that we can make decisions. But a lot of people can make decisions on emotional behaviors. 
And you might have, say, companies like finance companies that are aware of your ways of trying to cut through all this external stimuli and making shortcut decisions. And they help you do it in a way that leads you into maybe purchasing products or services from them. Um, is that something that you explore yourself? Uh, yes, and I would say uh, I think a major issue or a major theme um, uh, from a marketing perspective or how people make decisions is essentially what's known as framing. So how words are framed to us will actually lead to a certain outcome. So, for, for example, there's something called the um, annuity puzzle in which an annuity product is a, is a product, for example, from an insurance company in which we get equal payments from an investment over our lifetime, say, after we retire. Many people do not like these type of investments so because they are considered very boring. So, for example, if you say to a person um, age 25 or 30, invest in this annuity and you'll have $2,000 a year, excuse me, $2,000 a month in retirement in investment income, only about, at age 65, only about um, maybe 25 to 30% of the people will take that investment. Versus if you frame the decision as a spending activity, for example, if you say to the same person, you're going to, in retirement, have $2,000 a month, uh, per month, to spend on uh, traveling the world, playing golf, uh, going on vacations, and uh, fun activities, about maybe 65% of the people take the investment. And, and the reason why that framing issue is very powerful is our brain circuits are essentially tend to be um, focused on the notion of consumption or spending money. So many times we don't stick to a budget because we want to consume or we can't, we can't control our behavior or we suffer from what's known as self-control bias. So when you frame the, the investment objective as a spending piece in the future, people are less likely to spend today and save for tomorrow. Wow. That is quite a, a sales approach, isn't it, in terms of trying to get people to, to save for their annuity? And a lot of people may not be aware of what's ahead of them, especially, say, younger people that may not have the financial literacy. And I'm sure you know that um, you've written about it, how important financial literacy is at different stages of your life. Exactly. And then again, and I think if you're a financial advisor, you know, you don't have to use that as a trick for trying to get your your um, client to buy the product. I think if you give full disclosure and you use it as a way to build trust, it will help it will help people to agree to the investment, but also it will it will motivate them and help them understand to reach those financial investment goals when they're developing a financial plan, for example. Behavioral finance to me is very much like marketing or it needs marketing as part of its strategy whether you're a business or whether you're an individual who is maybe trying to to sell a book but how important or how similar would marketing be to behavioral finance because they seem to be two disciplines that have for a long time been quite separated but lately when we're seeing topics like nudging they seem quite related ah uh, yes I, I would say that and I think even just the way to think about it, the subtopic in marketing is essentially consumer behavior. So there is definitely over, so consumer behavior has probably been around for decades in the marketing literature. 
Uh, now, essentially, some of those topics in the consumer, uh, you know, in terms of advertising, how people make decisions, how people um, uh, visualize things, all those types of framing issues, as I said before, really impact people's investment decisions. I mean, even if you look at probably another area, we talk, there's a chapter in the book on mutual funds. Here in the United States, there's not necessarily a, a universal regulation on how investment returns are presented. So, for example, an uneducated investor right now would look at a mutual fund uh, returns, and if they're, only, if they're looking at an advertisement that only has five-year returns, they're going to look at that mutual fund and say, wow, those returns look very high. And the reason that they look very high is we're now those five-year returns are no longer going to include the impact of the financial, 2008 financial crisis. So the lack of framing or the idea of lack of, of leaving out information is another way where, you, on the other end, that some of these issues can be misleading to an investor. So that's why a person should be educated that they should probably, in that case, look at least 10-year and 25-year returns so they're getting the, the full, uh, never a full uh, bear and bull markets within the, the overall historical investment returns of a mutual fund product, for example. Yes, and, you know, we can learn a lot from disciplines like marketing. And how how do you think finance or even behavioral finance is going to look in the near future if we have other disciplines like say for example psychology and sociology and as a, a previous guest i've spoken to professor herbert gintas he talks about the need for biology and economics and finance too yeah i would say that you know there's even an area now uh, there's a chapter in the book in my book investor behavior on neurofinance which essentially looks uh, various studies look at different parts of the brain, for example, and shows that different regions of the brain are essentially attributable to how we make uh, decisions, for example. Um, that research is only about 10, 15 years old, so I think there's a lot of work to still be done in that area. But I, but I think in the, the future, in the next five to 10 years, a lot of the research is going to focus additionally on how we make decisions based on our subconscious mind. And we don't even realize this. So, for example, a, a laboratory experiment showed, a study done by somebody showed had two groups. One group was given a something to, to purchase. I think it was a mug or something. And the other group was before they were given the, the idea of going to purchase the mug, the mug they were shown either a negative or a sad movie or a, a clip or a commercial before buying the product. And for that control group that saw subconsciously, they didn't even realize that they saw that they were given a negative a commercial that spurred negative emotions. They were more likely to overbid for that particular mug or product because they had just by chance seen a negative advertisement beforehand. So again, that's the complexity of a lot of these issues is that we don't realize even our mood, whether we're in a good mood or a bad mood, may increase our risk-taking behavior, for example, and that may make us more or less likely, for example, to buy a stock, go see a financial planner. So our mood and our feelings really do impact our overall decision-making on a daily basis. 
And this whole work on subconsciousness, as you mentioned, it's quite a new area, but a very, very exciting area. And with the improvements in technology like MRI scans, I'm sure that's going to reveal a lot about human behavior, human responses to stimuli like those negative or positive uh, movie clips or sounds. Is there anyone in the field that kind of stands out to you in terms of looking at subconsciousness, whether it's in the finance area or in any other discipline that finance could actually benefit from? I would say a lot of the research in the neurofinance area, because, again, they're, they're actually looking at the brain. As I said, uh, Richard, some of Richard Peterson has actually written a, a wonderful chapter in, in my book, a card book, on the topic. So um, there, there are many people who are, are doing some wonderful work in this area, and that's why I think even if you just, um, even some of the basics, the basic topics and initial topics going back 20, 30 years, they weren't necessarily trying to measure people's subconsciousness, but I think it's still a theme that's apparent in many of these different biases. I'm sure that in your book, Investor Behavior, you wrote a chapter called Risk Perception and Risk Tolerance with Douglas Rice. How would you think that could possibly relate to the whole area of subconsciousness? Because I'm sure those two are going to really intersect quite well in terms of the findings and research that's going to come out of this in time. Exactly. And, and again, just to, to back away, uh, risk tolerance is a, a typically a definition of risk tolerance is the maximum amount of risk a person is willing to take in their overall portfolio of a risky asset. So typically people are either um, very conservative risk takers, they're average, or they're very aggressive. The component of risk tolerance that's related to is what's known as risk perception in which our feelings and emotions will increase or have a, an impact on our overall risk tolerance. So, for example, you know, whether it's subconscious or subconsciously, if you look at, there's two hypotheses in the risk tolerance literature, for example, that shows if a person's in a really good mood, a certain people, that actually increases their risk tolerance, and that will increase their likelihood of, of wanting to take greater risk, and they may buy a riskier stock. There are other people who say are in a good mood, and they may be content, and they may um, that may minimize their level of risk tolerance, and maybe they they don't want to take up more risk. So again, it's also I think also there's a chapter on personality um, uh, that also is part of how you know how people make decisions. So that's why depending on how and what angle you're taking or what topics you're talking about, for different people, certain biases are going to be driven by either their personality, their mood, and other types of aspects of their experience, their age, and other types of issues. It's a fantastic book. A lot of uh, content in here. I I'm just astounded by the amount of research that is provided in this type of uh, book that's actually aimed for both, I'm sure, financial planners and also academics. Um, you have 30 chapters with about 45 authors in this book, Investor Behavior. What motivated you to edit this book and make it available? Um, I guess I give a lot of presentations to financial planners and even individual wealthy investors and even novice investors. And a lot of times they would ask me, do you, do you have a book, something I could after I give a presentation? But also I, I see a lot of this research for various um, 
uh, different roles. I, I play as an editor and other online endeavors. As for example, at the Social Science Research Network, we actually have a behavioral finance e-journal that I, I review a lot of this research. So I wanted to have something, and also working with, with my uh, colleague or my co-editor, Ken Baker, he, he does these types of books in other areas. I just thought it was nice to have a project that really is well written. We between the two of us, uh, we probably spent about a thousand hours editing the book. Uh, at one point, I always I always forget to say uh, to people on why a book has value. Books still have value that are done well and edited well because a lot of the information on the internet is inaccurate. So most of the research that we're, you know, that's in the book is actually coming through peer-reviewed journals or actually editing for grammar. And a lot of times I think people, you know, even my students, I try to tell them is a lot of the information on the Internet, when it's just, you know, when it's free, many times it, it can be inaccurate. So that's why an endeavor like this, uh, something that's been edited several times, still has a great deal of value. and. And for me, royalties are, the you know, I'm not making much money from this type of endeavor. My, my main, and also my colleague, Ken Baker, our main objective is just to educate the, the public. But also, by doing these types of books, we also learn a lot about and also helps in my teaching um, my, in my classroom. There's a number of chapters here that stand out to me. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the book, but there's a few chapters in here. When I was a first year student at college doing a business course, general business course, the first, one of the subjects that I was introduced to was called organizational behavior. And I was introduced to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And this is addressed in his book. And I would never think that it would be part of finance or economics, even though we are talking about the organization and in chapter 10. And also in chapter nine, we talk about happiness. And this again is just another topic that has come into economics and i've talked to professor paul dolan who wrote happiness by design people have talked about happiness a, a podcast that's recently released just before this with professor nancy fulbray explained the importance of happiness and you again touched on it earlier on in terms of affecting your decision making but how do we like we're starting to embrace as what i'm aware of right now are other disciplines and other theorists like Maslow, why is this? Well, again, I think it's because, well, looking at it from a historical perspective, the the, the general discipline of finance really only goes back to around the 1960s. Here in the United States, for example, there really weren't a school of businesses or departments of finance until, I would say, in, many, in, in some instances, until the 19, late 1960s, 1970s. So it's really even just a phenomenon in education that really the last five decades that you even have a real structured discipline of finance. And so the initial work was just based on the rational school you know, highly statistical-driven people, people with, with, with quiet backgrounds. Those initial, you know, the, the fathers of traditional finance were, or founders of, of traditional finance, were more quiet-oriented. They were just, you know, maybe were, were an operations management. And so as you had a, a discipline in fine, a general discipline for about 30 years until the 1990s, some work 
in psychology was done and behavioral bias came out, and I would say the underlying in psychology uh, were, were done by Kahneman and Tversky, who were, uh, you know, they were psychology professors. So their work crossed over with a very small sample of people in, who are biased with professors such as uh, Robert Olson, uh, uh, Richard Thaler, Mayor Stotman, Hirsch Sheffrin, and a few others. And so that initial work in the 1980s really laid the groundwork in the 1990s. However, there was even resistance from the, the discipline of psychology that didn't even like the idea of people who were not classically trained in psychology taking topics from psychology and who were really finance professors. However, I think the financial crisis really showed the value in the psychology discipline of understanding finance because general therapists, typically here in the United States, I would say, for example, maybe charge a client uh, $200 an hour. Um, these people started at the financial crisis or Bernie Madoff uh, scandals, started to come into their office with money-related problems, and all of a sudden they discovered if they called themselves money therapists, they could charge these people $1,000 an hour, for example. And so now you actually have, there's a whole branch of psychology that's emerged based on uh, financial counseling and financial therapy, and there's actually a couple of chapters in the book. And, you know, for me, it's a wonderful opportunity, just not a learning experience, but these are wonderful potential careers for any country around the world because, again, these, these jobs cannot be outsourced. These are people, these are positions, for example, that are based on people meeting in person and developing relationships. So that's why I think there's such a much greater appreciation of these behavioral issues because the psychology discipline really started to embrace them. And also the financial planning profession is the greatest proponents of behavioral finance. And then I would say also financial analysts or essentially CMAs, have also embraced many of the topics of behavioral bias. So it's it's a long-term battle, but over time, as these ideas are presented to more and more people, I think they'll have more and more uh, success in implementing them across the curriculum in many different disciplines. I personally believe that if people who are, who are listening to this podcast if they have no connection with behavioral finance or no opportunity to study behavioral finance, I think maybe get a book that explains the basic principles of behavior, look at the heuristics and study those or read about them and have a self-reflective moment and identify whether they're in a way duped or can easily be duped by some of the external stimuli that surrounds them. And see, can they actually control themselves or do they recognize that they would pay more or less given a negative or positive setting? So I, I think it's your, your book is quite heavy. And, you know, if you want to venture down that way, but if you're a financial practitioner or an academic it's the, or a student, it's a fantastic book to have, you know, especially as in your library or on your shelf. You know, it's an amazing exactly. And exactly, and again, it's it's a thirty chapter book. Like, but again, you don't have to read every chapter in a night. You know, you can spread it out. You know, the, and you, there's different topics that will. You know, if people are traders, 
there's, there's a number of chapters on training psychology. There's a, a, a chapter on how, how religion impacts our decisions. As you said, there's also a chapter on money and happiness. There's a chapter on uh, demographic information, and there's a, you know there's a, a few cha- there's a, a few beginning chapters on the basics of uh, behavioral finance. So there, there's something, as I, I said, uh, you know. Th- this book like this isn't, you know, any any book you write, unless you're somebody who's able to sell hundreds of thousands of copies, you know, the, the publishing industry has suffered the same fate pretty much as the music industry in some regard. And it's just more of you do these type of projects just at least as, an, as a professor just to educate the general public, just to help people make better decisions. And especially if they're, or if they're investment professionals or financial professionals, hopefully the, the, the content in, in this book helps uh, people have more successful practices by helping their clients. And a great thing is that you offer the first chapter for free. And I'm going to put the link on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com forward slash Victor Ricciardi. And you can get a link to that. That'll actually, um, people, if they want to have a read of that first chapter, to give a taste of what this book is about. Amazing. Victor, I, I would love to find out why you decided to choose behavioral finance as a discipline, because those who have studied economics and finance would have got the general uh, introduction to that area. but what brought you onto your specialism now? Um, as part of my graduate work in the late 1990s, I was my first advisor, Hank Prune, um, actually introduced behavioral finance uh, to me. Took me a number of years to really be open to it. Changed um, my life, and at some point, I kind of got religion. But before then, I, I'm in the same boat as you, where I was just presented with the rational school of thought, the basic tools, uh, modern portfolio theory, you know, efficient market hypothesis, and, you know, and, and those types of topics. So I always thought I was rational, and I thought that was the only way to be. And then all of a sudden, I started to realize, once I started studying the biases and all these different issues, that I suffer from them. So, for example, um, you know, as an expert, um, you know, a major theme in behavioral finance is people tend to be overconfident and they trade too much and they get lower returns. Well, you know, at some point I thought I was smarter than everybody else. I traded too much and I started to lose money um, and I started to realize that I was suffering from overconfident behavior. And then when I bought a stock and I knew the stock was you know, an individual stock, for example, and I, and I knew that that stock was a loser. I didn't want to admit it to myself because I was, and then I started to realize I was suffering from so, something called loss aversion. And what loss aversion is, the idea is that, uh, you know, uh, equivalent gain of, say, $1,000 on the downside feels like a $2,000 loss. And so many times we don't want to take a loss because we don't want to admit that we made a mistake and we don't want to face the regret of owning up to that we made that mistake. So I started to see, as I learned about the basics of behavioral finance, I started to realize I started to suffer from many of these biases. And so then over time, what I started to realize is I disagree with the underlying assumptions of the traditional school that says people are rational. My idea of what behavioral finance is is that I want to understand what the biases biases are. Then I can apply which ones apply to myself, and then I then 
when the market moves up and down, I put into place a disciplined strategy based on that emotion that I have put into uh, my retirement account that helps me stick with that overall strategy, and then I'm not going to make those mistakes I did in the past. So it's kind of like I think the, the most finance professors would agree on the overall strategy and the outcome that we want to achieve. I just think it, the, the really the big discussion or disagreement is the reason why we make these decisions. I'm sure there's a company or some companies out there that are aware of the market size, the market potential of individuals wanting to hack their body or their mentality in terms of trying to control and recognize how they might be influenced, maybe due to overconfidence or loss aversion or framing. And I know there's a lot of wearable technology out there. It's only going to expand and or grow exponentially. And I'm sure there's a market for being able to recognize all of this. Or do you know of any technology that can do that for us? I know we have the MRI in that, but we're we're not consciously. Like, essentially, what I'm trying to do is trying to say is bring your subconscious mind to a conscious level. Does that exist? Well, I'm, I'm not. I can comment here in the United States, but even you had mentioned the notion of nudging, and what nudging is essentially there's more and more governmental policies that are being implemented to nudge people to hopefully help them make better financial decisions. So, for example, here in the United States, until about five years ago, if you were an employee and you were going to invest in a retirement plan, you had the, it was voluntary, so you would have to opt in. What the biggest problem is with people saving for retirement on an individual basis, voluntarily, is, is that we tend to su- suffer from what's known as status quo bias or inertia or procrastination. So what the governmental policy now here, for example, is the companies are allowed, and not, not I would say more, more of them are doing it, but people are, when they start a new position as an employee, they are automatically enrolled in the retirement plan They'll, you know, there'll be a basic contribution that allows them to do the company, and because people suffer from that status quo bias, most people then don't opt out of the automatic enrollment into the retirement plan. So that's an example of how governmental policies are starting to be utilized to automatically affect people's behavior. Uh, my only issue with automatically putting people in retirement plans is. Many times, it's not tied with investor education. So I, I'm, I'm quoted in the media many times, and sometimes I take um, I tend to be a contrarian because my concern is: does it make sense to automatically put somebody into a retirement account in their 20s if they have fifty thousand dollars in student loan debt and they have credit card debt? And so my concern is the automatic retirement. Enrollment should come with some kind of required meeting with a financial planner, some type of investor education, and that's where I, I think it's, it's ultimately that policy of nudging is done to help people save for retirement. My, my concern is it's just a, it's a very limited approach, and I just don't think, uh, the way I think of finance is that you want to treat the entire patient and not just and treat one aspect of the investor behavior, and that's really not going to really help the overall 
uh, decision making of that individual investor. And um, would you class this as an, an unethical approach by the company? Well, I don't think it's unethical from the company because, again, it's an, here. I don't know about um, other parts of Europe, for example, but here in the United States, this is something that's been is allowed by, you know, as it, part of updated uh, retirement acts, and so the companies are allowed to do it. Uh, I don't think necessarily it's unethical. I just my concern is the company, for example, the company is not looking after the best interests of the individual employee. For example, here in the United States, to get the tax deduction for you know for the matching contribution to have a retirement account, you have to have a certain percentage of people enrolled in the in the retirement plan. So if you automatically put people into the plan, the company automatically gets their retirement deduction or tax deduction. Um, the mutual fund industry or the financial services industry likes it because, again, that's going to be more people contributing money into retirement accounts is more uh, mutual funds that are going to have uh, higher asset values and they're going to get higher management fees. Uh, the politicians like it, whether Democrats and Republicans like it, is because they can then say a higher number of Americans, for example, are saving for retirement. My concern is we heard that same argument that more people were saving for houses during the housing before the housing crisis. So, um, again, I think it's a well-intentioned policy. I just think it needs to be tied to a meeting with a financial planner and a, an investor education. We have an aging population in a lot of these developed countries, and I consider that we're going to have a pension crisis and that we may have a Ponzi scheme, or it could be akin to a Ponzi scheme. Now, you, you're the professor of finance at Goucher College in Baltimore, and I'm sure you recognize and see evidence of student debt mounting. And if these young people are to service that debt, and they also have to contribute to a pension as well, where possibly there's high high levels of unemployment rates among the young people. The finance system is going to implode at those two perspectives or at those two spectrums. And I guess you know, I, I you know, I think at some point, if we don't, I, I think especially here in the United States, we're probably about twenty years away. If we make tough, if we make a few tough decisions now. You essentially, whether that's adjusting the, you know, benefits, our retirement age, and, or maybe raising uh, withholding taxes, incrementally, I think you add, you probably add a generation to to the saving. For example, Social Security. I think there is definitely going to be an issue with you know, especially public pension plans here at the state level because many of them are are underfunded, and at, at some point, what you're going to have is you're going to have people, and I don't even think it's going to necessarily be the young people, it's going to be the retirees who are uh, at some point are going to be taking haircuts or are going to take, be taking cuts in their overall retirement benefits. I can't see how, how you're going to have a young, a small, a smaller workforce being able to support many of these uh, ret- retirement plans, I, I think, or pe- excuse me, pension plans. And I think, and also the other issue in the United States here, especially, is there are less that most private companies do not offer the traditional plans. That's why they have moved towards the 401k style plan, 
you know, it's more of the governmental state level and, and federal level that offer the traditional pension plans. I would imagine in other countries if they're offering those traditional pension plans that over time they're going to be moving, they're going to have to move towards the 401k plan. Because again, even the 401k plan, what companies like about it is they make that individual contribution that year and that's the only liability that they have after they don't have any liability into the future. So over time, I think that those type of plans are going to become more and more prominent, in, and especially in even other countries. The, the, the biggest issue that I have with 401k plans is I think the, the biggest weakness of them is why they ever let they, they put the, the asset allocation decision and the investment decision on the individual who doesn't know much about these items was a bad policy decision. I think the policy decision to have 401k plans is a wonderful thing. I just think the idea of of trying to explain to people to maybe invest in six to ten different mutual funds, the idea of risk tolerance, or the idea of rebalancing, the idea of diversification, it's the general public just does not know these type of ideas, so there should have been a way within a law uh, which they should have been designed to make these issues much easier on the individual employee. Do you worry about the economy of the future then? I tend to be more of an optimist, and I, and I just I think what will happen at some point is if the problem is not taken care of, you'll, you're going to have to. You're, you're most likely going to have much slower growth rates. So I, I would say, if a, if a person is younger now, say in their 20s, that they should try to have an increased savings rate because if you assume that uh, you have the more developed countries are going to have uh, slower GDP rates. That's probably going to equate to lower uh, stock market returns. And if that's going to be the case, the way to overcome that is trying to save additional money earlier in your life, but also saving a greater percentage of your overall salary. Yeah. People could be experiencing wage inflation and, you know, it could come around to be a vicious cycle because price inflation could be, you know, prices could rise faster than wages and the savings rate then with these prices going up for investments and pe- people could be in a catch-22 where they may not be able to have those savings either. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, and again, I tend not to be a pessimist because yeah. we we don't know what the, what the economy of the future will look like in 20 years. You know, 30 years ago, you wouldn't have seen the the revolution that uh, mobile devices and the internet created. Yes. You know, so 30 years from now, we don't know what the world will look like, and that's why I think if there's there, there can be changes around the world, or changes in the economy, changes in, in, in innovation, that helps solve some of these problems. So, I, so again, I I would say prepare for the worst, but also prepare for a, an optimistic scenario also. And so, if you're trying to take both strategies. I just would hate for somebody to be completely gloom and doom, and when someone tends to be completely gloom and doom, they miss out on things when uh, things wind up turning out to be uh, very very high growth areas. Well, I, I know when you're talking about technology, there Lexus have come out with the new, uh, have invented a better version of the hoverboard that we would have seen in Back to the Future, so I want one of those. 
It's actually, it's actually, it actually can go over water and land. That's fun. Yeah, Victor, I would love to ask you a number of quick questions before we wrap up. Sure. Who are your main influencers when it comes to finance? Um, I, I'm still a very big fan of, uh, in terms of classical school, I, uh, William Sharp, uh, Harry Markowitz. In terms of behavioral finance people, um, people like Terrence O'Dean, um, people like Robert Olson, uh, Dan Ariely, uh, Mayor Stotman, uh, Herr Sheffrin. Um, and so there, there are many, uh, John Nossinger, there are many people, I would say, I can even, I can, there, are, there are dozens of people that goes into the hunters now doing some wonderful research in behavioral finance. They are household names. And if people listening haven't heard of those, or, you know, again, just check out the show notes page to this episode in economicrockstar.com and I'll have links for the work of these people. Do you have any internet resource that you would like to share with our listeners? I, I do most of my communication on Twitter. So if, if anybody, and what I do is, I, I, I think at this point I'm, I'm, I'm over 73,000 Twitter followers, so I just post uh, stories about personal finance and behavioral finance and re, some research on a daily basis, even my own research. And so if they want to just, if you want to just follow me on Twitter, you can either um, uh, search by na- my name, Victor Riccardi is my screen name, which is a V-I-C-T-O-R. My last name is Riccardi, R-I-C-C-I-A-R-D-I. Or if they just, if you just search by the, the, the key term behavioral finance in, in the search box on Twitter, my screen name should come up pretty quickly. You've got a, an amazing Twitter handle. You must have been one of the first behavioral finance people on Twitter. Oh yeah, I mean that's what, and that's all. I mean, and that's why for me, I'm just many times I don't comment on things. I'll interact with, with people occasionally, but all I'm I'm trying to be is I'm just using it as a platform to educating people. I've mentioned your book earlier, Investor Behavior, but I want to know: Do you have a recommended book that you are maybe reading at the moment, or that you have on your shelf? Well, I would say for people, um, a book that I use for my behavioral finance course, I use here at Couch, or I use my book, but also a, a good introductory book to um, the behavioral finance is The Psychology Investing by uh, John Nossinger. It's about 150 pages. And so many of the topics in that book tie into my current book, but it gives you more of an introductory also, uh, Daniel Kahneman's current book is very good, um, and, I'm trying, and, uh, and Richard Thaler also has a new book out. So there, there are more. And Dan Ariely has a couple of books that, that I think are very are would be helpful to people just learning about the general area of behavioral finance. Fantastic! I've numbered those books myself, and I would definitely recommend those too. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audio book with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. Do you have any final takeaway for our listeners, maybe when it comes to finance or financial education? Well, I would say the greatest thing that I would say to people is that I would say is uh, meet with a financial planner and get a financial plan done. 
Um, also, in terms of investing, I would say the greatest one of the greatest lessons that I learned is trying to understand what type of risk taker you are, whether you're, uh, as I said earlier, whether you're aggressive, conservative, or average. Um, meet with that financial professional and, um, and and come up with an asset allocation strategy that you are comfortable with, um, especially within a retirement account. You know, have maybe six to eight to ten mutual funds. Also, um, important point that stress in the interview is make sure. I think make sure you know morning, the Morningstar box is very important. What Morningstar has is. You should try to have mutual funds that are, are small cap, mid cap, and large cap, but also have those those market caps along value and growth. Um, we, you know, as investors, we have a predisposition to be growth investors. However, if you're a bargain hunter, and also because uh, stocks move in cycles, value many times over history in the stock market outperforms growth. So rather than try to own an individual piece of them at any particular time, again, be diversified and own each one. And the other thing is to rebalance your portfolio at least on a yearly basis. And what the rebalancing does is it helps a person stay within their overall risk tolerance. So, for example, in in a bull market, if you don't rebalance, you may overweight yourself in stocks and, and go outside your typical risk tolerance. So if you're risk average, you'll wind up being risk aggressive. And so, for example, if um, you're 60% in stock mutual funds and 40% in bonds, say the stock market has a really good year, and then you wind up being, say, 70% in stocks and 30% bonds, Take that percent, ten percent difference, and rebalancing it from bringing the stocks back to sixty, and then put that ten percent into bonds. And what you're doing essentially is when you go to the casino, why people lose money is they let it ride. What you want to do is you want to rebalance, put your foot on the brake a little bit, and put that money into safer investments. It goes the same way when we're in a bear market and we're not in the mood to put our money in those risky assets and the bond market does really well, shift more, some more money with the rebalancing into the stock market. So I think that risk tolerance, asset allocation, uh, diversification with enough mutual funds and the rebalancing is if we could get the general public, whether in the United States or around the world, to do that within their retirement plans in particular, they would be that would be that would be eighty percent of the battle at least of people saving for retirement. Great advice from a typical contrarian strategist. And I think I remember the, one of the jokes I said. You know, your, your program is about rock stars. So my, my, one of my colleagues called me Rockardi, as in rock and Artie. And I think that's the joke that we got in last time. And uh, wanted to get that one in again. Victor, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share again with our listeners where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, just search. search term behavioral finance or search by my name uh, my essential screen name is victor mccarty one word my last name first name and that's d-i-c-t-o-r-r-i-c-c-i-a-r-d-i you can find all the links to victor on economicrockstar.com forward slash victor ricciardi 
Victor, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rock star. Thank you very much. How are you, my friend? <laughs> thank you. So you're the first. I think you're the first to say that. So I, I'm in the club. Okay. Cool. <laughs>